introduction there, Scotty. Thank you. Um, my main beef with Scotty Reid. Um, for 10 years I've worked with that guy. And, you know, um, you know, Scott goes and he set, he writes this book. I wrote a book before him. My book didn't do so well. His, his book does really well. Um, and, then, and then he starts a podcast, 21 Elephants. Who's heard the 21 Elephants podcast here? It's amazing. I listen to it all the time. Now, what season are we at the end of? Does anyone know? We're at the end of season three. Now, just about every single one of my friends has been interviewed on that podcast. <laughs> and, um, you know, some of those friends have not done nearly as much stuff as I've done. <laughs> but for some reason, I just continue to be the 22nd elephant. And so tonight I thought I could just be the elephant in the room. <laughs> Anyway, I'm a dad, so I had to have a dad joke. Um, and there's my dad joke for the night. There you go, it's over. Um, but no, really, it's, it's great to be with you tonight. Um, I do have some blueprint stories, but I'm not going to start with them, otherwise I actually won't preach my sermon. So it's probably better that we start with what we're here to, to discuss. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty tough living in two, 2019, huh? You know, like we, we live as a generation understanding that by the year 2050, there'll be no more fish in the ocean. That uh, those fish that over a billion people rely on as their form of protein every day will be gone at current fishing rates. We live uh, in an environment where despite the efforts of the Paris Accord in 2015, the temperature of our planet is rising and she is angry at us as a species. She is upset with us uh, taking from her and not giving back to her. And so we live in an age where our young people are taking to the streets and protesting what a hundred years of capitalism that was born out of the industrial age has done to our planet. We live in an age where, um, despite the progressive thinking of people like you and me in the room, the actual political powers in the world are becoming more and more polarized. And through that polarization, we're seeing a new, fresh rise of nationalism. Sorry, I got told to hold the mic up, but I can be quite boomy, so um, if you need to put your hands in the ears, I understand. There's this new rise of nationalism, and that's where we're shutting down borders. You know, we're, we're actually closing our borders, um, where since post-World War II, the West had, had largely had open borders. Closer to home, we actually live in quite a depressing time in New Zealand. You know, in the 1980s, where I grew up um, in Palmerston North, my street uh, in Palmerston North there were state houses and then there were family houses side by side. And I went to school, I just went to my local school and there were kids from state houses and kids from just houses together at school. And no one knew the difference really. Their standard of living was not a whole lot different to mine. Today, we have 11,500 New Zealanders on the housing register tonight that cannot be housed. We have 42,000 New Zealanders who are homeless. They're either in um, overcrowded situations, living in cans, uh, in vans and cars, or um, sleeping rough. You know, we live in an age where, despite the fact that we have this food bowl in New Zealand that produces some of the world's best food, we produce the food for 20 million people. And there's 4.8 million of us. Somehow, we managed to make it possible for 100,000 children to be in food insecure homes. So tonight, there's 100,000 kids who don't have food in this country. You know, these are sobering, sobering statistics that we're living with. And you are a generation that are rising up in the midst of this. You're rising up not only to these global issues, 
of climate, not only to these geopolitical issues, but actually to issues at home, issues that have seen inequality grow. In, in your lifetime, how long you've been around, literally in that time, house ownership has become impossible for most of you in this room, on your own. And that's a steady decline from New Zealand's egalitarian base. So it poses the question, what do we do about that? And you know, this is particularly a pain point for me because um, I'm a change maker. And I've been a change maker for 20 years. But the problem's this, is that the change hasn't been big enough or wide enough or far enough or deep enough to make a tangible difference. Despite the best efforts I've got, all the prayers I've prayed, all the sermons I've preached, all the projects I've run, all the people I've led, despite all of that, I don't, I don't see I'm putting a dent in anything. So what do I do as a believer in Jesus? What do I do as someone who believes that Jesus is the hope of the world, despite these facts that I'm facing? And you know, the only thing that um, I can come to is that understanding that if ever there was a time that we need healing and a healer, it is today. And that actually we don't need more people trying to change things. We need a God that heals things. And predominantly a way that God heals things is that he actually gets people to be healers like him. He looks for people who are willing to be healers just like he is. And so tonight I want to really um, invoke a challenge to you about what it means to be a healer. You know, in the charity that I work for, we run a, um, a food store. We've got a supermarket <coughs> store that people come in and choose the food for themselves. And that was a little healing episode because when I arrived at the charity, there were old white women preparing parcels of food behind closed doors for young brown women with babies. And I just kind of didn't like the look of that. It kind of like sung colonization to me. And so we decided, look, let's actually open up the doors. Let's turn this into a supermarket. Let's let the young Māori woman actually run the store and let's give it away to them and give them back their self-determination and then let's see what happens from there. And um, in the midst of that, because I work for a very large um, faith-based organisation in New Zealand, um, there's policies, there's policies everywhere. And so we have these three policies, I have these three exclusion criteria of volunteers that I couldn't have come into the store. But the problem is most of the people, recipients of the store, um, violated one of the three conditions that they can't become a volunteer. I thought, well, my strategy of actually inviting these people to run their own store doesn't work because I've got all this policy that I've got to follow. So um, in classic style, you know, I had listened to the 21 um, Elephants podcast and, you know, activists and uh, artists and so I decided I'd break policy. So I broke policy and allowed this, this lady to, um, to actually come and volunteer for us. And I'm, I'm, I'm not working in the store. I'm just, you know, shuffling the paper. Um, and, uh, and I'm walking through the campus. And she comes and finds me. And she grabs me by the shoulder and she says, I know what you've done. I know what you've done. I know what the policy is here. You're not meant to have me. I'm not meant to be here. I'm not allowed to be here. I know what you've done. And she bursts into tears. And she says, thank you for giving me a chance. That's healing. That's healing. You know, we, um, we run this uh, service that, that goes into elderly people's homes. Because in this country, when our elderly get sick and old, instead of taking care of them as families, we actually pay the DHBs through our um, taxes to get other people to take care of them. And so our, our uh, charity, we, um, we go and we do all sorts of things for, for the elderly. Actually, we have 10,000 elderly clients right across New Zealand that we support every week. And um, of those clients, often we'll go in and we'll be doing their vacuuming or we might be doing shopping with them or we might be showering them or we might be giving them medication or we might be supporting some other kind of need for them, helping them do some rehab from an um, accident, or helping them with um, their disability. 
And um, I was interviewing one of our support workers the other day, and her name's Sheeta, and Sheeta comes from Malaysia, and um, Sheeta, uh, she's, she's a Muslim from Malaysia, and so I'm hearing her story about um, coming to New Zealand, and so she comes into New Zealand, and, and I said, oh, you know, and, and what made you, you know, what really impacted you about this place, Sheeta, you know, why have you come to talk to me today? She said, well, you know, it's an amazing thing. She said, I came, I came and I work for you. And she says our organization's name. She says, and you guys are Christian, and Christian means Jesus. And then she's like, and I was really interested in Jesus, even though I was a Muslim woman. And she's like, so I started doing this work. And she's like, and I lost my family when I was 13. Both my parents died when I was 13 in the troubles. And she said, so I got this job as a support worker and you guys pay me to go and be with the elders, to shower them, to care for them. And every house that I go into, they are my family. And she said, and then I went into this house and I met this man. And after I helped him, he helped me. And he told me about Jesus. And he led me to faith. And she said, and I just can't get a smile off my face to do this work. And Sheeta is a healer who was healed by a person who needed her help because he was sick. We need more healers in the world. We need to look for healing. So tonight I'm going to um, take you into the scriptures. Um, and we're going to look at Luke 19. And um, in, in preparation for this, you know, has anyone heard that quote, you know, preach Jesus, use words if you have to? Yeah. Remember that? It's like a, a, attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Well, it turns out, actually, when you go back, that's actually not what St. Francis said at all. He didn't say, um, uh, preach Jesus, use words if you have to. What he actually said was, it's no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. It's no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. And that's the essence of actually being a healer in this world. There's no use like being a Christian if you're just going to post something about, you know, the abortion law that's being passed on Parliament on your Facebook page, but you're not picketing outside Parliament saying that, you oppose it in public so everyone can see you, not just your virtual self. You see, you, it's, it's this congruence of your whole being that actually has to make things come alive. And we see this personified in the life of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you a story like Sheeta's story or like the story of the lady in our food story, store just right here in the scriptures from Luke 19. And this is in the Amplified version of the Bible. I always read the Amplified because then it doesn't miss anything out. It's always good. So those of you who don't know, the Amplified is when they make sentences longer. I quite like that. It goes like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, but he could not see because of the crowd, for he was short in stature. So he ran ahead of the crowd and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus reached the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your house. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and welcomed Jesus with joy. When the people saw it, they all began muttering in discontent. He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a notorious <coughs> sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, See, Lord, I am now giving half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household because he too is a spiritual son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And that was an important um, scripture to use tonight because actually that last line, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost, was actually a scripture that was given at the very beginning of this church. It was, it was a founding kakanor, it was a founding seed that was planted into the whenua of this fellowship. And um, 
here we see that Zacchaeus is very interesting. Zacchaeus climbs the tree to see Jesus, to see him, to see him. And I'm convinced because I meet Christians all the time that by their behavior and by their actions, I'm unsure whether they can actually see Jesus because they're not healing in their actions. But Zacchaeus climbs this tree to see Jesus. But you know, I've read this passage a bunch of times, and I just get so bored with the um, all the different sort of traditional ways of telling Bible stories. Does anyone else get bored of like reading the Bible? <laughs> no? Is it just me? Okay, I get super bored of reading the Bible. I'm a pastor's son, and I'm just over it. So, you know, the, the thing is, if you're bored with reading the Bible, there is an alternative, and it's called Google. And you can Google things... And on the internet, they have other ways of things coming out. And it's totally legitimate. <laughs> it's totally legitimate. And I found this totally legitimate story of Zacchaeus. But I wanted to read the one from the Bible first, just in case you didn't believe me. <laughs> but this one here is from eyewitnesses who were actually there. From Google. <laughs> I am not shitting you. <laughs> it was right there on Google. <laughs> Seriously, and it's written in the first person. So, how can someone tell me how it could be fake if it's written in the first person? Okay, they were there. Simple. Okay. Here it goes, and, and this is this is the eyewitness account now. Okay, this isn't some disciple after he smoked crack writing something. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Right, get it together, bro. See, I was doing really good up until that point. You all thought I was a legitimate speaker up until then. Alright. As we were about to pass out of Jericho, Jesus suddenly stopped and peered up into a large sycamore tree. It was early spring, but the tree's branches were already fully covered with leaves. I could not see what he saw or understand what he could find of interest in an ordinary tree. We passed dozens of such trees as we made our way through the city. And then, strangely, he started talking to the tree. Zacchaeus, come down from there. Today, I must visit your house. Did you see that? Double-sided paper. (laughs) (laughs) The sun was hot. The crowd pressed close to Jesus all day. He had eaten nothing since breakfast. Was he all right? Then he saw a pair of small legs, followed by an equally small body, emerge from the canopy of the tree. What appeared to be perhaps a five-year-old boy climbed down the trunk of a tree. He landed on his feet, hitting the ground with a slight thud. However, seeing his face, I realised he was not a small boy. He was a man, and an older man at that. He could not have been more than three foot tall, half the height of Peter. I did not know that a grown man could be that small. <laughs> See, how can this be Google way? So much detail. So much detail here. Alright. Utterly confused and astonished, I blinked and glanced at Peter. Peter moves close enough to me to whisper in my ear, Haven't you ever seen a dwarf before? He was. I never even heard the word. A dwarf is simply a small person, Peter continued in a whisper. Nobody knows why, but some people never grow to the stature of other men and women. When they're born, they are smaller than most babies, I asked in a whisper. Maybe a little smaller, but not as much. Dwarfs are rare. This man is the only second or third one I've ever seen. (laughs) This is legit. The reason Zacchaeus had ascended the tree was simple. The large crowd that surrounded Jesus, he was too short to even get a glimpse of the master, so he climbed the tree to see him. He had heard of Jesus and his kingdom message earlier that day. He had learned of the master's imminent arrival in Jericho. His curiosity was aroused, and he had to see this man. As it happened, Zacchaeus was well known in Jericho. He was also well hated. He was the chief tax collector not only in the city, but in the surrounding region. Dozens of other tax collectors worked under him, collecting levies for the Romans, the temple in Herod. He took a portion of all the taxes these men collected, making him easily the richest man in Jericho. (coughs) 
Jesus had asked if he could visit Zacchaeus' house. Rather, he told Zacchaeus that he was going to visit his house that day. The Pharisees and lawyers in the crowd were irate that Jesus would stoop to such a level and honour such an obvious sinner with his presence. As usual, they grumbled amongst themselves and spread their slanders amongst the people, some of whom agreed with them and stalked off. Zacchaeus was thrilled about entertaining Jesus, and the little man eagerly led us to his magnificent home on a hill overlooking Jericho. You will recall that Matthew, a former tax collector, and now our colleague, had a large and beautiful home in Capernaum, Capernaum, but it was nothing like this. The grounds and furnishings were exquisite. Zacchaeus had many servants. He needed them for such a large estate. It was evening now, and Zacchaeus ordered his butler to have the kitchen service servants prepare a banquet for Jesus and the twelve of us. The dinner was sumptuous, the food and wine excellent. Afterwards, we all withdrew to a large and comfortable sitting room. Zacchaeus had heard some of Jesus' kingdom message secondhand, but he wanted to hear it from the master's lips. Jesus was happy to oblige him. He spoke for over an hour, telling the same story he had told countless thousands during the course of the past two plus years. I never get tired of hearing it. None of us did. Jesus was a marvellous talker. Whether he was speaking in parables or teaching the gospel message, and it made no difference to him if the audience was small or large, his voice was clear, almost musical, and pleasing to the ear. His quiet passion for the gospel narrative was certain and absolute. What he said manifestly and deeply affected even many of those who could not quite bring themselves to accept the truth of his words. The exceptions were the Pharisees' lawyers, their hearts and minds proved to be impenetrable in most cases. Zacchaeus and the rest of us listened intently to what Jesus had to say, and when the master finished, the receptive tax collector was clearly overjoyed. Rabbi, I want to become one of your followers. Wherever you go, I want to go with you. First, I want to make things right with those who I have wronged. I'll give half of what I possess to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, and no of several I have cheated, I will restore to them four times what I've taken wrongly. I understand that you are going to Jerusalem for Passover. I haven't attended Passover for many years, but I will join you and the other followers there. First, however, I will do what I have committed to do. You, Zacchaeus, are a son of Abraham too. The son of man has come to seek and save the lost. This day, salvation has come to your house. So here we have it, this first-hand account of the story of Zacchaeus. And just a side note quickly, do you notice how poorly this passage looks on lawyers? Did anyone else notice that? Just so you know. So if you're at law school, maybe reconsider. <laughs> but that's not, that's not the point. Okay? Um, very good. Thank you. In this passage, a remarkable thing is there that isn't in any of the other passages that we read in the traditional text, and that is that Zacchaeus, and if you read a lot of the studies on this passage, is actually a dwarf. He actually has a physical impediment, and he's unable to see. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, it makes a whole lot of sense, right? That Zacchaeus has to climb a tree to see Jesus, not because he's climbing a tree just so he gets a better view, but because he's climbing a tree to have a view at all because of his physical impediment. So this guy has a physical shame. This is not 2019, right? This is um, in ancient Palestine at a time when Jesus had to heal people who had physical ailments because they were considered cursed. So Zacchaeus, before he's a chief tax collector, is considered cursed. But not only that, he's rich. And his riches are his safety, right? His riches are his mask. His riches are the thing that enable him to have standing in the community. And that's where he takes Jesus to this house, to this estate that is on the hill looking at Jericho. Because that's that's who he is. That's his dressing. That's his identity. Because without that, he's just a condemned, cursed dwarf. 
when Jesus sees him, he surprises the crowd like he does in every passage of scripture that we see Jesus actually reaching out to have relationship. And he decides, I'm going to go have dinner with this guy. And in fact, this is the only time in the gospel where Jesus invites himself to dinner at someone's house. Quite a big call. He says, I'm coming to have dinner with you. And to do that, um, Jesus is now being called into question. Because this is the guy that's ripping off all of the Jews. He's got all of his tax collectors out there. So Matthew the tax collector would have been one of the tax collectors who worked for Zacchaeus. But as a chief tax collector, not only would Zacchaeus receive um, the taxes, but and actually get... Um, you know, exploit the Jews for more than what they were due. But he had his minions out there, and he would clip the ticket on every other tax collector. So this guy is in very, very high standing in the community in terms of his wealth, but low standing in terms of his reputation. Do you get that? And then what happens is, without Jesus saying anything except talking about the marvellous way of the kingdom, without him talking to Zacchaeus's personal flaws, or what's wrong with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is healed. He's healed so much that he can just give away his riches. And remember, this guy's a dwarf. Without his riches, who is he? He's the condemned. He's the leper. He's the equivalent of the leper. He's the equivalent of the woman at the well who's been called an adultery. He's that equivalent. He's giving away his riches and he's got his physical impediment there. And the thing is, is that he does that because he's just healed by the presence of Jesus. So it goes to reason, doesn't it? That if you've met the real Jesus, you're healed. And if you aren't healed, have you met the real Jesus? Because his healing is absolute. Now, Zacchaeus is still a dwarf. And we love this, don't we? We've got this human way of projecting onto Jesus what he ought to do for us. What his healing needs to look like. You know? God, I've got anxiety. You haven't dealt with my anxiety yet. No, I've been too busy dealing with your pride. God, I've got this condition, this, this um, chronic fatigue condition. You're not dealing with that. Now I'm dealing with matters of the heart concerning your parents. God, I've got this physical ailment. I'm actually more concerned with your soul. See, Jesus is healing left, right and centre all the time, people. Healing is breaking out everywhere all the time. And those stats and those things that I said at the beginning is a certain lens that you have if you want to read the narrative of what the media wants us to believe about where the world is at. But there's a different narrative. There's a counter-narrative to that. It's a narrative of healing. It's a narrative of a new world breaking forth in the midst of this one, with Jesus at the centre of it. And that's the narrative that Zacchaeus grabs a hold of in this moment. He grabs a hold of that, and his life has changed. You know, after the, uh, over the last 18 months, I've, been friend, uh, I've befriended a very high senior government official. And when I first met this man, when I met him, his, his first interaction with me, he insulted me. Right? Then in his subsequent six interactions with me, he tore my organisation down. And I used to come out of meetings with him, and I'd be walking with a colleague, and I'd just be going, man, we can't go near that guy. And then we'd like have a prayer, and we'd be like, man, we just got to stay in relationship with this guy. We don't know why. Like, he's not, you know, we're getting no funding from him. We're getting no contracts. Like, that's what you're doing with your charity game. You're friends with people because they give you money to do stuff to help the poor. That's what you basically do. So, like, if I meet any of you afterwards, just introduce me to the ones with money that can help me help the poor. Um, that was a joke. Uh, but, you know, there was none of that. And this guy's a senior official. And anyway, um, a, few, a few months later, 
the Holy Spirit prompts me. I'm in my office. The Holy Spirit prompts me and says, I want you to call that guy. I want you to ask him how he is. I'm like, Lord, that's the most ridiculous thing you could possibly say. I mean, this guy's a senior official of government. Like, he gets calls from the Prime Minister, not the world Brook Turner. What am I going to do? Call him up? Ask his EA to put me through? Oh, can you put me through to, you know? He'll be like, hey, man, how are you going? How are you doing? No, I was, I was just asking. <laughs> no, 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 I haven't got any further with that work stuff you asked me to do. No, 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 just see how you are, really. You know, I'm like... Lord, I'm not going to call him like he's my mum. You know, like, this is ridiculous. I keep getting this prompting. Keep getting this prompting. This prompting gets stronger and stronger and stronger. I'm like, right, all right, I'm calling him. I've got his cell phone number. There's no way he's going to answer. This guy's a senior government official. I won't get him anyway. It's going to go to voicemail. I'll just do it, and then I can be like, God, I obeyed you. <laughs> to voicemail. Hey, we'd like to catch up, you know? And um, so I call him, and he... And he answers. And I say, Brooke here, hey man, this might sound really weird, but I just felt to call you and see how you're doing. I just felt like you might have been going through a hard time or something. He says, oh, well, well, actually, Brooke, it's been super tough. It's been really tough. In fact, I've had a falling out with the minister. You know, I feel like my whole agenda's um, been rubbished. I just don't know what I'm doing. I said, hey man, well, I just want to let you know that I think you're doing some good stuff and I want to be here for you, you know, like we can, we can talk to each other about this stuff, but you're a person, I'm a person, I just want you to know that I'm here for you if you need me. End of conversation. Seven months later, I was in a meeting with that high government official. He came up to me and he said, Hey, do you remember seven months ago? I was in a real dark place. And you called me and reached out to me. And that really meant something to me because most people that I deal with in this business, they just want things from me. But you didn't want anything. You wanted to make sure I was okay. See, healing doesn't have to be a big thing. You get that? It does not have to be a big thing. And actually, in the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus doesn't do a big thing. This isn't Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, right? He's not walking on water. He hasn't multiplied food to feed 5,000 people. All he's done is go for dinner with a dwarf. That's all he's done. And by doing that, he makes the dwarf feel like a giant on the inside and transforms his life. And that's what healing can do. That's what healing can do. And look, to finish with, I'll tell you some, some blueprint stories on healing, really. Um, I've got a little timer here that's going to off shortly. But... Um, I want to encourage you, maybe the way that you begin to find healing in your life is by being a healer for others. Maybe instead of looking at that thing that you need, you begin looking at where that need is around you. And you know, when you begin to do that, you can begin to see healing. It doesn't mean leaving your, your healing behind. You know, you can still be addressing your healing. We need to do that. But we cannot be introspective. We cannot just look to ourselves. We must look to how we can be healing agents in the world. Our world, our communities depend on it. But you know, even when you get it wrong, God can do it. And you know, early days in Blueprint, um, we befriended a homeless guy because that's what you do when you become a pastor. I was like, I've got to be friends with the homeless, you know? Um, and, you know, all these years later, I actually work with the homeless and realised that, you know, my, my efforts back then were quite lame and um, trite. But, you know, we befriended this homeless guy anyway, and he was the only homeless guy that wanted to be befriended by us. <laughs> so that's quite funny, because yeah, most, most actual homeless people, they're wised up to the fact that, you know, the church wants to help them. 
And the other thing is that most homeless people are actually believers. Like, they're already Christian. They already believe in God. Like, you don't need to lead a homeless person to God. They already have God. They've probably got God more than you or not. You or I. I am yet to... Look, I've worked for three years with homeless people. I am yet to meet a homeless person who is an atheist. I'm yet to meet one. They all believe in stuff. Okay? But anyway, made friends with this homeless guy. <laughs> And he was a glue-sniffing homeless guy, so I thought there was extra points for that, like extra Christian points. Like, not only was he homeless, he sniffed glue, people. All right. And so he used to come to um, Blueprint, and anyway, sometimes he'd come high, so I was like, look, you can't come high. You cannot come to Blueprint high, all right? You've got to be sober when you come to church. So anyway, came in this one night, and we had these double um, key lock doors on, on the venue, and Scotty and I had paid some horrendous amount of money to get these like double, do you know the ones I'm talking about? They're like the double, what do you even call them, Scotty? I don't even know. The lock. Yeah, it's just a lock. <laughs> <laughs> Expensive lock, let's just call it that. So anyway, this one night, this guy comes in and he smears his glue through the locks because he was angry at me about something, which from time to time homeless people irrationally get angry, just like us. And, um, and so I'm pissed at him, right? I'm pissed. So I get in there and I'm like, because I know it's going to cost me like a few hundred dollars to get these locks fixed. And so I'm talking to him and I say, hey, look, mate, I'm just done. I'm done with you tonight. Like, just, just go. Just leave. And I'm like, so this is my point of like kicking the homeless guy out of church. So if anyone's read the Bible, it's kind of like, not what you do. Like, regardless of what happens, like, maybe kick the rich guy out of church, not the homeless guy. Like, just as a point, you know. But anyway, I was pissed at this guy, so I kick him out of church, and I tell him to F off. I'm like, F off, gone. As the pastor, you know, back then, I'm not a pastor anymore, so I can actually say F off, but... As a pastor, I see their fault. And, and so off he goes, and then I just feel terrible, you know? I've kicked out a homeless guy from my church. And at the time, my brother was not walking with Jesus at all. Far from it. Um, he was trying to walk in exactly the opposite direction. But on this particular night, where this homeless guy, John, walked, he actually walked up the street, and lo and behold, my brother, the pastor's brother, is walking down the street, and I hadn't paid attention, it was the middle of winter, that the homeless guy had no shoes. So my brother meets him on the street, and he had just come from basketball practice, and he sees him, and he says, oh, hey John, shouldn't you be a blueprint? He goes, oh, your brother told me. And he's like, um, why haven't you got any shoes? Wouldn't they give you any shoes? He's like, Nah, they wouldn't give me any shoes. So Ben pulls out his, his basketball shoes. He just bought a new pair of um, Air Jordans. He gives him these Air Jordans, puts, puts them on him. He says, well, listen, mate. He's like, I don't believe in any of that church stuff. But he's like, if you don't embarrass me, I'll take you to church tonight. All right? And so he takes John, gets him in his car, drives him to another church in town, and John goes to church. <laughs> So, like, I kick the homeless guy out, tell him to fuck off. <laughs> he leaves, all upset. He meets my brother, who's not walking with Jesus, and is like a high-flying banker. Gets a pair of shoes and gets taken to church. <laughs> all in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and there's the power of healing, my <laughs> <laughs> Just two more stories and I'm finishing. So, when we started early days, it was really sad. Like, it was really, really loose. It was so loose that actually the night before I was meant to be ordained to be a pastor, um, <laughs> I got absolutely drunk. And I was drunk in the morning. And so I was meant to go to the Rock Church to get ordained, but I was still drunk. So then one of the guys from church called up the church elders and said, Hey, look. And one of the elders said, hey, look, Brooke's, Brooke's really sick. He can't get to church this morning. 
And so at church they prayed for me to get well. But actually I was really well. I, I was fine. I was happy as. Don't worry, I was never ordained. Okay? So just to let you know, it's okay. Um, but it was loose like that. And, and part of that looseness was, you know, our worship leaders, they were loose. Like we had some really loose worship leaders and... Um, and <laughs> I'm trying to hold this together. Yes, this uh, healing is coming in this story. <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, one of our worship leaders, he um, went on this trip with his friend from another church. And they went on this trip, and it was like this development trip around the world. And they were just friends, but when they were on the trip... They got a little bit friendly, and he got her pregnant, right? And they didn't, they didn't want to be together. They were just friends. They got friendly. It was a one-night thing. And so they come home, and they don't want to be together. They still want to be friends. They don't want to be together, though. And now, you know, there's a baby growing. So they come and see me. I'm like in my late 20s trying to pastor this church really, really well, <laughs> as you can tell from my stories. Um, and uh, they talk to me and say, hey, Brooke, what, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, what does the other pastor say that you should do? Because I was thinking, aha, you know, <laughs> she goes to this other church, there'll be a legitimate pastor, he <laughs> have wisdom, I can just go with what he says, excellent, get out of jail free card, right? But, and they said, well, the other pastor says we should have an abortion if we're not going to be together. I said, but you're not going to be together, right? And I'm like, yeah. And I said, well, I don't really believe in abortion. Oh, I said, um, but I don't actually believe that you should just get married because you're having a kid together either. What, what, if, what if you guys could raise a child as friends? What if you could just be friends for life in the name of this child. What about that? I said, we think that's a really cool idea. I said, it, it feels a lot better than some of the other options. Like one, you get married if you don't love one another, or two, this little baby doesn't get a chance to live. He said, oh, let, let's try that. I said, yeah, that'd be great. So anyway, that was amazing. I thought, wow, and, I, and it was a complete experiment because I had no idea if that would work at all. I'd never heard of anything like that working before. I didn't even have kids. I didn't even know. But it sounded good. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, I had a coffee with the guy, and he says, hey, Brooke, there's just one thing I've, I've been praying, and I really feel like I need to get up the front of Blueprint, and I need to confess to what I've done. And I said, mate, that is batshit crazy. <laughs> All right, like I know Blueprint's like meant to be this progressive church. There's no way I'm letting you get up the front and admit to what you did because there will be people in that audience who will judge you forever for that. You know, you're a worship leader. I've seen this go bad. You know, I'm a pastor, son. I know how that goes. Don't do it. Don't do it. He's like, Brooke, I really feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I've got to get up in front of the blueprint, and I've got to tell them what I've done. How can I be up there as a worship leader and not actually get, get up and tell them what I've done? And I'm like, well, it's just kind of like a lot of worship leaders. <laughs> <laughs> not as bad, but, you know. Um, but, no, he wanted to do this. So, anyway, we come to the Sunday... And he's going to get up the front and talk, right? And I'm just absolutely like, I'm just like, oh my God, like, Lord, if you are real. <laughs> like, I'm the pastor, Brandon. Lord, if you are real, please let all judgment go to the other churches tonight. Let none of it be here. Please, Lord, please. So he gets up the front. He tells a story about what's happened. And at the end, he starts crying. And before I can do anything, half of the congregation comes forward and just hug him. And they just love on him. And they just start praying for him. And you know, 
The power of healing in that moment was so beautiful. Ten years later, I met that guy in a cafe. And he shows me a picture of his son. He shows me a picture of his friend. And they've continued to raise this child together as friends. And he calls that moment in this church the most profound spiritual moment he's ever had in his life. Isn't that amazing? I think that one is linked to healing. Last story. You know, I believe in a God of third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth chances. You know, there, there is not an amount of chances that God won't give you to be redeemed. He loves you. Think about the worst thing that's going on in your life right now, or the worst thing that ever has happened. God loved you in that place. He loved you in that place. So of course he loves you in this moment. And you know, we, we, we early days when we started, we saw a whole bunch of different people from a whole bunch of different backgrounds come to faith and come to Blueprint. And one of them came to faith out of the porn star industry. And you know, she had been in the porn industry and, um, and when she came to faith, she had a radical faith experience and then she had a real gift to speak. And she'd get up the front and she'd speak and she'd speak at Blueprint, she'd speak at other um, churches around Wellington and um, you know there were Christian um, media people that wanted to do documentaries on her and she had this incredible testimony and she would speak about how to um, see people set free from the power of pornography. It was really, really powerful stuff. And anyway, as she um, went on in her ministry, I saw a, a whole bunch of potential for her, and Katie and I tried to mentor her in that. And then um, she ended up uh, getting in a relationship with this guy from another church, and he was an um, aspiring motor car, um, race car driver in New Zealand. He's one of the top race car drivers in New Zealand. And so they became sort of like the mini Christian celebrity couple in Wellington. Like, yeah, it was like a thing. And um, anyway, they, they went through this whole process, got married. She decided to go to that church and, you know, we were fine with that. That was cool. And then the, their relationship just disintegrated, absolutely disintegrated. And she completely fell out of that relationship, out of her relationship with God. And she ran away and she fell back into the porn industry. And um, I remember um, I was walking down Willis Street one day and I just felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, you know, I want you to send her a letter. And I was like, I don't even know where she lives. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, we've got email for a start, but a letter. And, but I don't know where to send the letter. And then as I'm walking through the crowd, one of her friends walks through the crowd towards me and I'm like, this is just ridiculous. So I stop her friend and say, hey, do you know where so-and-so is? And she's like, yeah, she's here. And I'm like, can you write down her address for me? I'd like to send her a letter. And she's like, yep. And so she writes down her address. And so then I've got her address and I'm like, what do I even say in the letter? Like, God's like, write a letter to her. I'm like, what do I say? So I'm like praying what to say and, you know, it didn't just come to me. Um, and I keep praying, and then, and then I felt like God gave me what to say. So I write her this letter, and this letter goes something like this. And we'll just, we'll call her Sarah, okay? It says, Dear Sarah, you are one of the most incredible women I have ever known. You have such a gift on your life, and God is in your life. And regardless of anything that you've done since we last spoke, none of it has changed my opinion of you. And if it doesn't change my opinion, then I'm pretty sure 
it doesn't change the opinion of Jesus. And I want to let you know that I love you. And if you ever need me, I'm here. I close up that letter. Send that letter to that address. About three months later, I get an email from Sarah. And that email says, Brooke, you have no idea what that letter did for me. When I opened that letter, I read it in my bedroom. I wept. And the presence of God came into that room. And it just brought healing into my life. I'm coming back to New Zealand and I want to meet with you. Can I meet with you at this time in this cafe? And so at that time in that cafe, I met with her and we prayed together. And she was restored. She now has a family and is living for God. Because what the world says you do when people fall, all the dirty stuff, when actually you see past that to the person, true healing can come. So I want to encourage you tonight that God is here to heal you no matter what you're facing. And I want to encourage you tonight that you can be a healer no matter how big the problems are that you see out there in the world. Amen? Mm -hmm. So what we're going to do is, um, there's going to be some worship. I've gone far too long, as usual. Um, but I want, to, I want the opportunity to pray for people tonight. So we're going to do a, a, a bit of a bold thing. We'll get that music going, but if you if you want some prayer for healing, you can go to the cross in the corner. Okay, it's right there. It's been the allocated area for prayer. Okay, um, and I'm going to come over there. I'm going to pray for you, and I'll encourage you with that. Like if you if you've got some big, huge, sizable thing that you don't think that God can possibly work in your life in. Let, let's see what can happen tonight. And if you're looking to be a healer, if you're saying, hey man, I just, I long to make a difference with my life. I long to be someone who brings wholeness to a world that is breaking apart. I want to pray for you too. Is that cool? Awesome. Thanks guys. Let's just pray as the music team comes. Lord, we just thank you tonight that regardless of what we're facing and where we are, that, Lord, you call out to us like you called out to Zacchaeus, that you want to have dinner with us tonight, that you want to commune, and that, Lord, you want to minister into the deepest parts of us. And we know that you are a healer and that you do bring healing. It's who you are. It's just who you are. And so when we meet you, we meet healing. And when we embody you, we become healing to others. So God, we pray tonight that as we sing, as we worship, Lord, as we open our hearts, that you would do that deep healing work. In Jesus' name.